You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. It's a sin to kill a mockingbird. Those words might sound familiar to you if you've read the novel by Harper Lee titled To Kill a Mockingbird. In the book, those words came from Atticus Finch to his daughter, Scout. And the author, Harper Lee, was using that phrase, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird, to foreshadow the unjust death of Tom Robinson. It was a literary device that she used to anticipate the death that was coming, the injustice that was coming. Foreshadowing is used by many in literature to provide a clue or warning about later events that will develop in the storyline. Well, did you know that the Bible is one true story of redemption? And as the story of redemption unfolds, God Himself provides some foreshadowing. He provides some pictures that anticipate what is coming. And for the next three weeks, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter Sunday, we're going to look at some Old Testament pictures of the cross. We're going to begin by looking at Numbers chapter 21. So turn there with me. Numbers chapter 21, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 4, down through verse 9. Numbers 21 verse 4, when you've found your place, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word which I will remind you is truth with no mixture of error. It's the living Word of God. Numbers 21, verse 4. The Bible says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die In the wilderness. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, what a privilege to gather again as a faith family and fix our eyes upon Jesus. To reaffirm that we are a Jesus people. That we trust Jesus. That we've proved him or and or. And now I pray that as we study your word, you would help us to lift up the name of Jesus in this place in a continuing way that we might be changed. God, I pray that as your word goes forth by the power of the Holy Spirit and intersects our lives, that we would leave today knowing we have met with the living God. Lord, have your way in this place. We love you, we praise you, we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. A very interesting, succinct story found here in the book of Numbers. And I want to walk through this story by mentioning four different words. There are four words that really describe this story. It says there in verse 4 that from Mount Hor, they, this is the nation of Israel, led by Moses during their wilderness wanderings. This happened between the, the exodus from Egypt and their conquest of the promised land. They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience to God and going into the promised land, so God made them wander until the unbelieving, disobedient generation died off. So they're in the wilderness, and they set out for Mount Hor, uh, by the way of the Red Sea, going along beside the Red Sea, heading toward the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Now the first word that really describes what's happening in this story is the word rebellion. The word rebellion. It says they became impatient on the way. And look what it says in verse 5. The people spoke against God. And the people spoke against Moses, his chosen leader, his chosen representative before the people. They're speaking against their leadership. They're speaking against God himself. Why are they speaking against God? Well, look what it says in verse 5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. That was a false statement. Earlier in the Torah, earlier in the book of Numbers even, you see God miraculously providing water from a rock so the people could have water to drink in the desert. And then we see God miraculously providing these These wafer-like substances called manna. Every morning they would wake up, there would be manna on the ground. They would gather enough for the day. 
And then on the next day, there'd be more manna on the ground. This bread from heaven, God provided for his people. Not only that, the people got tired of eating only manna. They said, oh, we wish we had some meat. So God sent quail. The Bible says a several days journey from the camp, you would walk away from the center of the, the, the encampment, and you still find quail. He brought them down to their levels. They could take the quail and eat that, uh, eat that meat. So God supernaturally provided water. God supernaturally provided manna. God supernaturally provided meat. And here the people are saying, we have no food or water. And we know that's an untrue statement because look what it says in the next phrase. And we loathe this worthless food. (laughs) We have no food and we don't like it. That's what they're saying there. They had food. They just were tired of the food they were eating. They they did not appreciate the, the gracious hand of God in providing for them in their wilderness wanderings. And they even say there, you brought us out of Egypt for this? They're sensationalizing their time in Egypt. They're thinking, we had it better in Egypt. We had different types of food. We had it made. They didn't have it made. They were enslaved to Pharaoh. He was a harsh taskmaster. And God, in his grace and mercy and power, intervened and sent ten plagues so that Pharaoh would release the people of Israel. And they were set free from that bondage and brought to God himself. Yet, after God had done so much, they murmur, they rebel, and they speak against God and Moses. So, the Lord sends judgment. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But notice, after the judgment comes, notice what they say in verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have sinned. We've spoken against you. We've spoken against Moses. We have sinned. They recognized their rebellion against God. So this story begins with with God's people rebelling against a gracious, merciful, providing, protecting God Rebellion is on display, which leads to the second word, and that is provision. That is provision. It says there in verse 4 that the people became impatient on the way. Verse 5, they speak against God. There's no food or no water. We loathe this worthless food. Verse 6, then the Lord sent Fiery serpents among the people. Fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So God sends judgment in the worst way I can imagine. I hate snakes. And God sends fiery serpents, poisonous snakes. And they would bite people and the people would die. And the implication here is there was no escape. I mean, imagine walking in your tent and there are snakes on the floor and you pull back your covers and there are snakes in your bed and there are snakes around the the place where you cook your food. There are snakes everywhere and they're biting people and people are dying and they understand that 
their rebellion calls for God's judgment. So it says, the people came to Moses and says, We have sinned, we have, we have spoken against you. Then they said to Moses, would you pray to the Lord for us? Would you be an intermediary? Would you pray to the Lord so he may take away the serpents from us? So Moses prayed for the people. And notice the next phrase, and don't miss this. In the midst of their their judgment, in the midst of their, their fear and trembling, the Bible says, and the Lord said to Moses. You know, Moses could have come to God and said, We're dying by fiery serpents. God, can you help us out? And God could have been silent. But God in His grace speaks. God in His grace reveals that He is going to provide a remedy. And look what it says there. The Lord said to Moses, and here's the remedy. Make a fiery serpent. So make a likeness of these serpents that are biting people. Out of bronze, it says there in verse 9, that he made it out of bronze. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. If if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So he's saying here, make a serpent, put on a pole, and the, the idea of the pole is it is lifted high so people can see it. God in his grace provides a cure for the bite of the serpent. He provides deliverance, watch this, from his own judgment. He provides a way for them to experience his mercy in the midst of their rebellion. So there's rebellion in this story. There is provision in this story. But third, the third word is the word appropriation. Appropriation. Look what it says there in verse 8. Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole. That's the provision. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. When he sees it, he shall live. So it wasn't enough that there was this serpent on a pole lifted up in the middle of the camp. The people who were bitten had to actually look at the serpent. They had to appropriate God's provision for their own life. They had to personally look. And if they looked at the serpent on the pole, they lived instead of died. It was a simple cure. Just look. Just look. And they could be saved. Timothy Ashley writes this in the two verses... Two different words here are used for the phrase to see. Perhaps your literary variety actually writes, but also to stress that it was necessary to do more than simply see or catch a glimpse of the copper serpent. One actually had to fix one's gaze or pay attention to this figure. Listen, a definite act of the will if one wanted to be healed. So if someone was bitten, they had to look fix their gaze on this, or personally appropriate. Notice, a mom and dad couldn't look on behalf of their children. Everyone had to look. A grandfather couldn't look on behalf of his grandchild. A husband couldn't look on behalf of his wife. There's no proxy looking here. Everyone who was bitten had to look if they wanted to live. 
So there's rebellion and there's provision and there's personal appropriation. But fourth, there is salvation there in verse 9. Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and look at those next two words. And what? And what? Live. He would live. If anyone was bitten by the, by the fiery serpent, the judgment of God against the rebellion, they fixed their eyes on this serpent on a pole, they would live instead of die. Can you imagine the urgency? If a snake bit you, you'd be finding a vantage point quickly, would you not? Where's the serpent? Where's the bronze? I must look and live. There was salvation from God's judgment, deliverance from God's judgment. Now I think Ian Duguid mentioned something important about this serpent on a pole. The serpent on the pole was not a magical cure for snake bite. It wasn't just some kind of magical talisman that they would use to be cured from the poison of a snake. On the contrary, Ian writes, it was a sign that worked by taking the Lord at his word through faith. The people were to look intently at the bronze serpent, putting their trust in the power of the Lord's victory over evil, and then they would be healed. In other words, there was no power in the serpent on the pole. It was simply, if you believe what God said and took it by faith and looked, you were healed. In fact, it's interesting to note that after this story, the nation of Israel keeps the serpent on the pole. And over time... They began to worship this serpent on a pole along with other idols. It became an idol for them. They're actually worshiping the bronze figure. To the degree that in 2 Kings chapter 18, Hezekiah, the king leading in reform, destroys it. Because it was leading God's people astray. There was nothing magical about the serpent on the pole. It possessed no power in and of itself. The people had to look by faith and they were Saved. So, here in Numbers 21, there's rebellion, there's provision, there's appropriation, there is salvation. And here's the point I want to make this morning. The serpent on the pole foreshadows or anticipates the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The serpent on the pole foreshadows or anticipates the cross of Jesus Christ. You might say it like this, the serpent on the pole is a picture of the cross. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Wade. You're taking us to this obscure story buried in the Old Testament. It's an interesting story, but it's about serpents and people dying of snake bite and bronze Figures on a pole being lifted up and people looking. and li- I mean, what, what does this got to do with the cross? What does this have to do with Jesus? I just don't see the connection, Pastor Wade. How is the serpent on the pole a picture of the cross? Well, listen, don't take my word for it. I want you to listen to the very words of Jesus about this story. 
And in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking there of the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus himself points out this story in Numbers 21. It says that is a picture, it's a foreshadowing, and an anticipation of the cross. As the serpent was lifted up, I must be lifted up as well. So how does this, this story of the serpent on the pole speak of the cross of Jesus Christ? Let me give you some answers to that question. Like the Israelites rebelled against God and were in danger of devastating judgment, all people have rebelled against God and are in danger of eternal judgment. It's easy when you read the stories of Israel to wag your finger. Those Israelites, they should have known better Who are they to murmur and rebel against God? God had been so good to them. God had blessed them in so many ways. I mean, I can't believe the way they responded to God. And we wag our fingers and we miss the point that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. If you don't see yourself in the rebellion of the Israelites, you really don't understand the Bible. Because the Bible paints the picture that all of humanity is fallen. In some way, shape, or form, we have all rebelled against a holy, righteous God. Just like the Israelites. And so like the Israelites rebelled against God and were deserving of judgment, everyone in this room has rebelled against God. And we deserve Eternal judgment. Far worse than being bitten by a snake and dying. The Bible speaks of of an eternal judgment of separation from God. In a place of torment and wrath. That awful place called hell. The fiery serpents remind us of the fires of hell itself. Also... Like God provided a cure through the serpent on the pole. God provided a cure for our sin by sending his own son to this earth. He said to Moses, I'm going to make a way for people who are bitten by a poisonous snake to to live and not die. I'm going to make a way for them to be saved, delivered from my judgment. And in like manner, the Bible teaches God sent his own son to this earth. To come and be the provision for our sin. The provision for our rebellion. So we could be delivered from the judgment that you and I deserve. God provided a cure for our sin. And his name is Jesus. Like the serpent on the pole had to be lifted up. Jesus, as he says there in John 3.14 had to be lifted up on the cross 
to die for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, with no beginning, eternal Christ left the splendor and glory of heaven. He came to this earth for a reason. He came to this earth to suffer and die. He came to this earth knowing that he would have to embrace the cross and on the cross hang there taking our sin and shame. You can imagine, can't you? Moses leading the the craftsmen to to design this bronze serpent and, and attaching the serpent to a pole and then lifting the pole up in the middle of the camp so people could see. That anticipated the reality that one day on a hill called Golgotha, Jesus Christ would allow his hands to be nailed to a cruel Roman cross. He would allow his feet to be nailed to that cross. That cross would be lifted up. He would hang there between heaven and earth from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon dying on that cross. Also, like the serpent on the pole, Represented sin and evil and judgment. Jesus took all of our sin, evil, and judgment on himself on the cross. When you read the story back in Numbers, you might ask the question, why in the world would the symbol of healing and salvation be a snake? Snakes were the very, very creatures causing the pain and the death. They were the instruments of judgment. And by the way, remember when Satan deceived Adam and Eve, he took on the form, not of a puppy dog, took on the form of a serpent. So why in the world would there be this this serpent on a pole? Why would that be the symbol of healing? The serpent pictured judgment, it pictured death, it, it pictured evil. Why would that be the symbol Because it reminds us what happened on the cross. Jesus Christ endured great physical anguish on the cross. It was an excruciating way to die. But not only did Jesus Christ experience excruciating physical suffering, Jesus Christ experienced spiritual suffering. As the Bible says, He took all of your sin and shame. On himself. And he took all of my sin and shame on himself. Just like the serpent represented evil and judgment and death, Jesus Christ took all of our evil, all of our judgment, all of our guilt on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Romans 8.3 says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself, listen, 
bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The serpent on the pole, evil, death, judgment, sin, that's what it represented foreshadowed that Jesus Christ would would allow himself as the sinless Lamb of God to be nailed to the cross. And on the cross, he would become sin for us, taking all of our sin and shame and paying the penalty that we deserve to pay. Did you know that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, all of the wrath of God that we deserve was poured out upon him? Who died in our place. But there's another part of the story in Numbers that anticipates the saving work of Jesus. Like the Israelites had to look at the serpent on the pole to live, everyone needs to look to Jesus and believe in him to live. It wasn't enough. To know that there was a serpent on a pole. You had to actually personally appropriate the healing for yourself. You had to personally look at the serpent. And it's the same with salvation through Jesus Christ. The one who is lifted up on the cross to die in our place. Listen to me. You must personally appropriate the work of Jesus in your own life. Or let me say it like this. Moms can't believe on behalf of their kids. And grandparents can't believe on behalf of their grandkids. And wives can't believe on behalf of their husbands. And husbands can't believe on behalf of their wives. There's no proxy salvation. It's not enough just to know that that Jesus died for you. You must personally appropriate His death on the cross. You must see your own personal need and of your own volition go to Him and say, I believe in you, Christ. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I want you in my life. I believe. So like the serpent on the pole had to be looked at. For Jesus to be your Savior, you must believe. And then finally, like those who looked at the serpent on the pole in faith were saved from certain death. Those who looked at Jesus in faith are given eternal life. When an Israelite in the camp was bitten by a snake, the judgment of God, when they looked, they were healed. They would live. And Jesus says over in John 3, Verses 14 and 15, that as the Son is lifted up, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Like the Israelites were saved, you can be saved too. Not just from temporal death in the here and now, but saved from eternal separation from God. 
If you believe in Christ, if you personally appropriate Christ, you will be given the gift of eternal life. That means that death does not have the final say. Jesus defeated death when he rose from the grave. That means that even when you deal with your own mortality, even when you breathe your last, if you know Jesus, you get to go to heaven and be with him forever. That's what the old hymn says, when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Instead of eternal judgment, there is eternal life. And let me tell you something about this saving faith, this belief in Jesus. I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the late 19th century. And it so moved my heart. And I just want to share it with you about looking to Jesus. He writes... We are told in the text that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. That is to say, he was healed at once. Not five minutes or five seconds, at once. And then he says this, because that story anticipates Jesus. If you have lived in the blackest sin that is possible... Up to this very moment. Yet if you will now believe in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved before the clock ticks another time. It is done like a flash of lightning. Pardon is not a work of time. Thou believest, thou livest, he writes. Thou dost trust Christ, thy sins are gone. Thou art a saved man the instant thou believest. And then he says this, Oh, the matchless grace of God. Salvation is not something that you achieve through your good behavior or your religiosity. Salvation is a absolutely, an absolutely free gift that you receive the moment you place your faith in Christ. And the moment you place your faith in Christ, at that moment you're born again. At that moment you're forgiven. At that moment you're redeemed. At that moment you're delivered. At that moment you are saved. Amen? Reminded of that reality when we see the picture of the healed Israelites. But all of that leads to this question. Why? Why would the sinless Son of God, who never said a wrong word, never thought a wrong thought, never performed a wrong action, perfect... Why would he allow himself to be nailed to a cross and lifted up? Why would he take all of our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our evil, all of our impurity, why would he take it on himself? And why would he hang there and satisfy the wrath of God that you and I deserve? Why did Jesus take our hell for us? Why? We don't have to wonder. Because when Jesus mentions the serpent on the pole in John 3, he says this, As Moses was, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then comes the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16, when Jesus says, For... The reason I'll be lifted up 
The reason I will take your sin and shame, the reason I will die in your place is for this reason. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. You say, why would Jesus take my place? Why would Jesus take my hell? Why would Jesus take my wrath? Why would Jesus die for me? The answer is this, because Jesus loves you. And the cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God for you. If you walked in this room this morning and you you weren't sure about the love of God, you can leave today knowing for certain that God loves you. He loves you so much He gave His Son to die for you. Jesus is that spiritual serpent on the pole taking all of our ugliness punishment that we deserve dying on the cross for us Charles Wesley the hymn writer had a keen appreciation for the love of God and he wrote these words amazing love how can it be That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.